Hi, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry, and I'll be your host. I'd like to apologize for the tremendous, like, three-week gap between the last episode published and this one. I had finals, and then I hurt my tongue somehow, so it was difficult to speak, but here we are. Today, we're starting our coverage of Operation Typhoon, Germany's last gasp offensive to win the war in the East in 1941. Let's get into it. Guderian, who commanded the southernmost portion of the central sector, had secured permission to begin his portion of the offensive, Operation Typhoon, on September 30th. The other two sectors would begin their attacks on October 2nd. Early on the 30th, Guderian began his assault which kicked off with an artillery barrage and airstrikes. His 24th Panzer Corps spearheaded the offensive, with the 47th conducting a supporting strike. These two quickly punched through frontline Soviet positions, but Red Army tank brigades gave them trouble. With the aid of Stukas, these were eventually bypassed. In the face of this assault, Soviet command and control quickly broke down. Soviet commanders were also unaware of the extent of the threat. General Andrei Ermakov, who commanded the forces under attack, believed it was merely a diversion and reported it as such to Aramenko. The German advance sped up on October 1st as German panzers brushed aside disorganized Soviet resistance and advanced deeply to the north and east, partially enveloping much of the Bryansk front. On October 2nd, the other two sectors of the offensive began. The 53rd Army Corps, positioned north of Guderian's panzers, began their push to link up with them and form an encirclement at Bryansk. The 40th and 46th Panzer Corps, under Hopner, were concentrated along a narrow front and slammed into Soviet forces. The attack had the disadvantage that there was no element of surprise. Soviet forces knew they were going to attack and knew where they were going to attack. However, the Soviet forces they were facing lacked armor and anti-tank guns, and in the face of panzer formations, these hastily raised divisions were shredded quickly. Hopner's panzers were able to conduct a full and clean breakthrough, rapidly widening their bridgehead. At the same time, Haas' panzers were smashing their way through Soviet forces to the north of Hopner's men, and were pushing their way south to meet up near Vyazma. By the evening of October 3rd, Haas and Hopner's panzer divisions had advanced as much as 50 kilometers, with Haas being halfway to Vyazma but both were still facing active resistance. Guderian's forces had made it into open country and had advanced over 200 kilometers in four days to take the city of Orel with little resistance. The success of these first days elated German soldiers and commanders. It seemed to confirm what they had believed, that the Red Army was on its last legs and that victory was right around the corner. There were significant material problems for Guderian, even at this early stage. Casualties had not been severe, but the advance to Orel had exhausted almost all of Guderian's fuel, and this was in conditions of good weather and on good roads. The Soviet response to these early attacks was hectic. In many cases, communication broke down as German forces advanced so quickly that information was outdated by the time it had worked its way up the ranks. Still, there were counterattacks. Many of these were local affairs, and were conducted in what was almost typical Soviet fashion at this point, disorganized and piecemeal. Most of them only succeeded in sapping the Red Army's strength while inflicting far lower casualties on the German units. 
Konev, who was commanding the Western Front, did manage to put together a more serious effort against Haas panzers. This delayed some of the armored units and exacted a heavy toll, but failed to prevent German forces from closing several huge pockets. Despite the impending disasters at Vyazma and Bryansk, the Stavka refused to allow a withdrawal. With one Soviet pilot reporting a huge German column stretching for 20 kilometers and marching unopposed towards Yuknov, a city about a third of the way to Moscow, he was simply dismissed as crazy or incorrect, and it took two more identical reports to convince the right people of the imminent danger. On October 5th, they agreed to establish a defensive line along Mosaisk, the Mosaisk Line, which lay about 110 kilometers west of Moscow. At the same time, Stalin finally authorized the Western Reserve and Bryansk fronts to withdraw. By then, however, just like at Kiev, it was too late. Also on October 5th, Stalin contacted Zhukov and ordered him to return to Moscow from his post in Leningrad. By October 6th, and at the very latest October 7th, German forces had met up and created pockets at Vyazma and Bryansk. At Vyazma, the 40th and 56th Panzer Corps encircled the 16th, 19th, 20th, 24th, and 32nd armies, while at Bryansk, the 47th Panzer Corps conducted a single pincer encirclement to trap the 3rd, 13th, and 50th armies. This amounted to the complete destruction of the Bryansk Front and Western Front, and a decimation of the Reserve Front. The reserves were almost depleted, and all that could be spared were six rifle divisions and six tank brigades. To patch up holes, or do the best they could, the Stavka had to dispatch police units, cadets, and people's militia units to man the Mosaic line. Whatever remained of the Red Army would have to hold on for at least a week until new reserves could be raised. The only bright side of all this was that Stalin had finally agreed to transfer forces from the Far East to the Eastern Front. Stalin had been afraid that Japan would join Germany in attacking the USSR, and in early October, there were still almost 60 intact rifle divisions in the Far East. This was partially motivated by desperation, and partially based on information from Soviet spy Richard Sorge that Japan had no plans to invade the Soviet Union. On the German side, there was frustration and rancor despite the overwhelming success. Huge armored columns were confined to a single road, with breakdowns, traffic jams, and fuel shortages often bringing the whole thing to a halt for hours at a time. Inside the command structure, there was a bitter fight between Bach and Strauss. Bach commanded Armored Group Center, while Strauss led the 9th Army. Bach believed that the infantry's role should be to create and hold a perimeter, and that Strauss was being wastefully aggressive in how he deployed his troops. For his part, Strauss was offended at Bach's interference, as well as Bach's decision to reassign one of Strauss's few reserve units. On October 6, things reached a fever pitch when Bach ordered one of Strauss's divisions to advance, something Strauss resisted. At the same time, Bach had feud with von Weichs, who commanded the Second Army, as well as Hopner. The two had ambitious ideas about expanding their pockets, something which Bach dismissed as unrealistic and foolish. Complicating things even further, Gunther von Klug was distrustful of panzer commanders, and he viewed them as overambitious. As he was nominally in charge of several panzer groups, he frequently clashed with Hopner, and Hopner complained that Klug would routinely countermand his orders and interfere in his affairs. Earlier in the campaign, Klug had bickered with Guderian, and at one point even threatened to court-martial him, but Guderian's success and role in propaganda put him almost beyond reproach. 
In fact, on October 6th, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group and von Kleist's 1st Panzer Group were renamed the 2nd and 1st Panzer Armies, respectively. This was supposed to reflect their status as independent units. The bitter arguments within the German command did claim the job of at least one commander. General Karl Heinrich von Stolpnagel, commander of the 17th Army under Army Group South, was relieved of command on October 5th. Stolpnagel had been fighting with Rundstedt, who viewed him as too timid. One final command shakeup came when Hermann Haas was reassigned from Panzer Group 3 to take Stolpnagel's command in the 17th Army. This was a strange choice. Haas was a skilled commander who had received high marks from von Lieb and Bach, among others. By most indications, this transfer does not seem to be personally motivated, but it also doesn't make a whole lot of military sense either. For one thing, although command of an army was technically a promotion over leading a panzer group, the panzer group was clearly more important, especially at this time. Panzer Group 3 was an essential part of Operation Typhoon, while the 17th Army, while of course still important, was undeniably just not as vital. Moreover, switching commanders at such a delicate point in such an important operation seems a bit odd, especially while things are still up in the air and in motion. Despite all of this, Haas left for Ukraine on October 9th and was replaced by General Jörg Reinhardt, who had commanded the 41st Panzer Corps. The weather, which had been nearly perfect at the beginning of Operation Typhoon, was turning cold and bitter. October 6th was a freezing day, and the evening saw the first snow of 1941. That snow melted, but then this soaked the roads, making driving even more precarious. However, rather than discouraging German forces, this act is a major motivator for many. Nature itself was telling them that they had to hurry, there was no time to waste, and there was no time to wait for things like supplies or reinforcements. On October 6th, Hitler delivered orders for follow-up operations now that the pockets at Vyazma and Bryansk had been closed. Panzer Group 3 would make a long advance to the northeast and seize Rejev, then the city of Tver, over 200 kilometers away. This was an attempt to destroy both the remainder of Soviet forces facing Army Group Center, as well as the Northwestern Front. The major problem with this was that Tver, which was then called Kalin, was 160 kilometers from Moscow, meaning that Panzer Group 3 couldn't do much to help its comrades to take the city if they so needed that help. Panzer Group 4 was directed to take whatever forces that it wasn't using to close the Vyazma pocket and immediately began an assault towards Moscow. Hopner was unsatisfied with this. He wanted to leave the business of closing the pocket, as to say eliminating it, to the infantry, and redeploy all of his armor towards Moscow. But Klug insisted, and eventually won out. The situation was reversed with Guderian and his 2nd Panzer Army. Guderian only allowed one Panzer Corps, the 47th, to help close the Bryansk pocket. The 24th Panzer Corps was to push forward and capture the city of Tula, about 175 kilometers south of Moscow, then move north to help take the capital. The 48th Panzer Corps would seize Kursk, and then make a 300-kilometer trek up north to help out at Tula, freeing up the 24th for its operations in the Moscow area. Returning to the action on the ground. The Bryansk and Vyazma pockets were being progressively demolished, and there were no Soviet armies coming to relieve the pocket. The size of the Bryansk pocket, which was 
let it suffice very large, meant that the perimeter could only be thinly held, and German commanders reported quite a few breakouts. The pocket was the site of ferocious fighting, and Halder noted on October 8th that Guderian's right flank was coming under pressure from this. The thin German cordon sometimes resulted in stunning Soviet victories on the local level, despite the desperation of the overall pocket. A German officer named Erich Hager recalled coming across the aftermath of a skirmish between German and Soviet forces that saw a shattered panzer and a column of shot-up German vehicles. Clearly, the Soviet forces had gotten the better of them. The situation was much better for Germany at Vyazma. The pocket here was smaller, and this created a densely packed environment, which allowed for a tighter cordon as well as the effective use of airstrikes and artillery to ravage Soviet troops. In light of this, Hopner and Bach had wanted to deploy the 57th Panzer Corps for an eastward attack, but Klug restrained them, hoping to form an unbreakable ring around the pocket. For his part, Hitler was rather unconcerned with the pocket, but placed a high priority on getting Panzer Group 3 moving to the northeast. And this required that Hopner's Panzer divisions start advancing as soon as possible and free up Reinhardt's forces. Klug's objections were not just down to his desire to avoid breakouts. He was also seriously worried about the supply situation, and he was right. The motorized logistics companies that the Panzer Groups depended on were only supplying about half of the Army Group Center's needs. All four of Hopner's Panzer divisions were very short on fuel, and one reported having absolutely none. In Guderian's sector, rail lines were insufficient, and roads were turning to mush as snow melted. Forward units had to call in transport planes to airdrop supplies, and commanders reported fields turning into motor vehicle graveyards as fuel ran dry and dead vehicles had to be pushed aside. All of this was partly due to the breakdown in infrastructure and the shortage in motor vehicles, but supply issues had reared their head so soon into Operation Typhoon because there had been neither the supplies nor time to establish stockpiles before Typhoon began. Nevertheless, the onslaught continued. The 41st and 56th Panzer Corps pushed northeast. The 40th, 46th, and 57th Panzer Corps attacked east towards Moscow, while the 24th and 47th Panzer Corps pushed east towards Tula and Kursk. Meanwhile, Soviet forces were attempting to withdraw as quickly as they could, all while fighting ferociously to slow the German advance. Soviet forces had recovered, at least to some extent. On October 10th, the first major Soviet unit began assaulting the outer ring of the Vyazma encirclement. These blows are weak and disorganized, lacking heavy weaponry, and had very little chance of breaking through the German lines. Still, it put surprising pressure on the German forces. The Vyazma pocket continued to compress. By October 11th, it had shrunk to a 20 by 20 kilometer area. The Bryansk pocket was proving more difficult for the Germans to break. By October 10th, it had been broken into two sections, one to the north and one to the south of Bryansk. But both of these pockets were loosely held. The northern pocket just tenuously held closed by a ragtag battle group. By the 12th, the Battle of Vyazma had come to a head. The pocket had been crushed down, and Soviet armies mustered whatever strength they had left to desperately fight their way out. These battles claimed thousands of German soldiers and far more Soviets, but the German ring largely held. 
On the 13th, the pocket was split into several smaller encirclements, most of which surrendered or were destroyed shortly after. The battle was declared over on October 14th, and potentially 500,000 Soviet troops were captured in the Vyazma area, as well as hundreds of tanks and thousands of guns. Perhaps 85,000 Soviet troops managed to escape from the pocket. But the battle still raged on at Bryansk. Despite declarations on the German side that the pocket north of Bryansk was, quote, as good as ended, German divisions were having to fend off Soviet attacks from both inside and outside the pocket. Early morning on the 14th, a Red Army contingent managed to break through German lines and create a corridor to the northern pocket. They held open a two-kilometer gap for up to 12 hours, and German forces in the area were so overstretched that they had the recall elements of the 24th Panzer Corps to reseal the encirclement. At first glance, it may be confusing why German Panzer Corps couldn't simply drive forwards to Moscow, especially when they aren't facing major organized resistance. The stay of the roads has a great deal to do with this. Cross-country terrain, never easy to drive across, was made impassable by torrential rain and melted snow, so German units were forced to exclusively travel by road. This made them easier to target and prevented German forces from maneuvering. With great difficulty, German forces pushed forward. By October 11th, Kunsten's 57th Panzer Corps were with only 140 kilometers from Moscow. But as German units approached the Soviet capital, Soviet resistance ratched up. On October 13th, the 3rd Motorized Infantry Division committed three of its battalions to an attack, with each one losing at least 100 men, while the 20th Panzer Division reportedly lost all of its company commanders. On October 14th, the 20th also reported having only 37 operational tanks. Despite these losses, Soviet forces were adapting, learning new tactics, in spite of taking massive casualties and having to be rebuilt over and over again. German units reported that many of their Soviet enemies had adopted a tactic where the infantry would engage and occupy German forces from the front while their tanks struck them in the back. In the north, Reinhardt's panzers were having more success. On October 11th, the spearheads advanced 40 kilometers. On the 12th, 45 kilometers. On the 13th, German tanks rolled into Tver, having advanced 70 kilometers. Rejev was taken on the 14th. To round out Operation Typhoon for this episode, Guderian's forces managed to push northeast of Orel and capture Matensk on October 11th, but were severely depleted and still far from either Tula or Kursk. For Army Group North, their options had become much more limited. Although von Lieb controlled upwards of 50 divisions, only about half of these were in the general Landgrad area. Moreover, he only had two Panzer and two motorized divisions. With the weather rapidly turning cold and bitter, Lieb gave Hitler two options for how they could proceed. He could either attempt to destroy a Soviet bridgehead west of Landgrad, or advance to the northeast toward the cities of Tikvin and Volkov to cut the last links the city had, and perhaps link up with Finnish forces. Personally, Lee preferred a scaled-back version of the second plan, but Hitler dismissed this, claiming that this would require armored operations over port terrain. Instead, Hitler ordered a full enactment of the second plan, which, while taking place over more favorable terrain, would send German units over twice as far. This would almost inevitably create a line so long that von Lieb could not possibly hold it with the forces he had. 
Despite this, the only concession Hitler granted was that the attack would begin October 16th, 10 days after von Lieb's envision start date. For his part, Halder dismissed this plan as a complete fantasy. On the Soviet side, Stalin was desperate to hold the city, and if possible, launch an offensive to reestablish a link to Leningrad. But since Operation Typhoon had started, Soviet attention had shifted to the unfolding disaster. Moreover, it was not at all clear that Soviet forces had enough strength to conduct a counteroffensive. Meanwhile, German artillery and airstrikes continued to pound the city itself. Food supplies in Leningrad began to dwindle, and there was no end in sight. In Ukraine, Army Group South was able to make significant advances despite its exhaustion. On October 1st, the 3rd Panzer Corps launched an attack to the south with assistance from the Romanian 3rd Army and 11th German Army. Soviet forces had depleted themselves in a series of counterattacks in late September, and now could not hold out against the German onslaught. The 9th and 18th Soviet armies began retreating on October 3rd, but German forces moved too quickly. They reached the Sea of Azov by October 7th, cutting off seven Soviet divisions. There was no opportunity for a breakout, and by the 11th of October, the pocket had been destroyed. At least 100,000 prisoners were taken. Further north, German forces continued their attempts at advancing in the Kharkov-Belograd area, but were held off. In Odessa, it had become clear to Soviet commanders that it was pointless to continue the hold. There was no prospect of retaking Ukraine this year. The decision was made to evacuate the defenders, who had been holding out valiantly and successfully against Romanian attacks. The process of evacuation began the night of October 14th, and most evacuees were redeployed to the city of Sevastopol in Crimea. In the air, the Luftwaffe proved decisive in the early success of Operation Typhoon. Air power, primarily Stukas and other bombers, made up for the weakness of the German panzer units. Although the Luftwaffe itself had been severely damaged, with many of its best units out of action, it continued to be a powerful force. Strenuous action against the Red Army in the first few days helped create major breakthroughs and were integral to the creation of the Vyazma and Bryansk encirclements. But there were also severe problems for the Luftwaffe. The sheer size of the front, and its width and depth, meant that only the most important areas were given air support, and even then this support could be spotty. Many units were left exposed, and this allowed Soviet planes to occasionally wreak havoc on isolated German troops. On October 10th, 18 Soviet planes launched a surprise attack on a German airfield near Orsha. They claimed over 80 planes destroyed, which was certainly an exaggeration, but doubtlessly they inflicted losses that the Luftwaffe could not afford. As the Bryansk and Vyazma pockets formed, much of the Luftwaffe's forces were assigned to help destroy these encirclements, freeing up the armored units for a further advance. As a result, even these essential spearheads had little air cover in October 9th, 10th, 11th, so on. The Red Air Force took advantage of this, launching unceasing attacks to attract the motorized and panzer forces and slow them down however they could. Depleted VVS units were reinforced with whatever was left, regardless of how outdated it was and whether it came from surplus or military museums. Bomber regiments were created out of obsolete biplanes. These bomber regiments were used for night attacks and actually proved far more effective than they had any right to be. Their engines were extremely quiet because they were extremely weak, making them difficult to detect under the cover of darkness. And they actually flew so slowly that many German planes stalled out and crashed while attempting to stay behind them. 
despite these small successes, which demonstrated the ability of the Red Air Force to innovate, the Luftwaffe was still dominant in the skies. In the north, Soviet and German planes raged over Leningrad, the former trying to defend the city and the latter trying to level it. Over Ukraine, Luftwaffe IV was split in multiple directions. They had assignments over Kharkov, over Crimea, and towards the Sea of Azov. This severely split their strength, and things were probably the hardest in the Kharkov area. Here, German forces were trying to advance on the ground, but also trying to prevent the Soviets from disassembling and evacuating the factories of Kharkov, which was a major industrial city. Already weakened, Luftwaffe IV lacked the strength to do both. Moreover, they were astounded and frustrated by Soviet troops and the Soviet Union's ability to improvise and repair their infrastructure in no time at all. German bombers had first targeted the railways in an attempt to stop the factories from being evacuated. But they found, to their frustration, that it took less than six hours after an attack on a railway for the Red Army to repair the railway and get it up and running again. Eventually, Germany would had this to targeting rail cars. This was uh, more likely to see success, but it was also much more limited success. Uh, if you destroy a railway, nothing can go through. If you destroy a rail car, nothing in that rail car can go through. These attacks occupied much of the Luftwaffe's time and energy and allowed Soviet planes to do real damage to German ground forces in the area. Turning to international news, the Second Battle of Changsha came to an end on October 8th. Waged between Chinese KMT forces and the Imperial Japanese Army, it marked Japan's second failure to take this major central Chinese city. In what's now Libya, the siege of Tobruk wore on. Axis forces under Erwin Rommel had conducted a successful advance, but Allied, mostly Australian, troops had held out in the port city of Tobruk, where they were now surrounded. As long as Allied forces held Tobruk, Rommel's supply situation would be severely hindered, and he would be unable to conduct further campaigns. British bombers had conducted major bombing raids on Berlin, Cologne, and the Ruhr area on the night of October 7th. This did demonstrate the reach and power of the RAF, but these raids were not the hammer that Churchill had hoped for. Churchill hoped to completely destroy the scientific and industrial apparatus of the Third Reich, but this was very far in the future. The threat of Luftwaffe interception, as well as German AA, forced the RAF to attack at night. And this, along with general inexperience, resulted in very poor accuracy. And even these night bombing raids came with heavy losses. Finally, by October 12th, German forces had more or less cleared the last Soviets from these Stony Islands. That last one is not really international news, but I couldn't really find a good place for it. Analyzing this week, it's hard to see this as anything more than an absolute disaster for the USSR. Sure, I can talk about heavy German losses and the German supply situation, but the Wehrmacht is no longer a thousand plus kilometers from Moscow. It was one thing to look at uh, the German supply situation when they were at Minsk or Bialystok or even Kiev and say, well, in 100, 200 kilometers they'll collapse, but now they're maybe 150 kilometers from Moscow and they've yet to collapse. At this point, German forces have easily destroyed most of the armies that the Soviet Union had spent so much time preparing and had sacrificed 
At this point, millions of men and armies worth of equipment and whole countries for just the time to gather these up, and they've just been destroyed. A Soviet victory, or at least Soviet survival, will hinge on grit, skill, and determination by commanders, as well as absurd levels of bravery by soldiers. Anything else will see the Soviet Union be completely destroyed. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the episode. My name is Harry Stevens. I've been your host. If you would like to get in contact with me, give me suggestions or comments or criticisms or anything else, you can reach me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week, hopefully. And have a good week, guys.